Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Today we're going to be talking about uh, all things prenatal and uh, postpartum, exercise, things that can and do happen with with the body, etc. Pelvic health, pelvic organ prolapse, diastasis, ab- abdominal rictus, separation, etc. Incontinence, yep. Pelvic floor strengthening, all of it, all everything. of it with with. Uh, someone who's really a, a leader in, in that realm, the incredible Sarah Hag, a mm. women's health physio. She's awesome. She's very awesome. And if you want to know how to cue pelvic floor properly, and P.S., if you think you're cueing it right, maybe you're not, give this a listen. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Raph. How are you going? Wait, 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 wait. Wait. Let me guess. Okay. I'll give you three guesses. Oh, I reckon you're awesome. Fuck, you nailed it first time. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm really awesome too. <laughs> yeah, life's it's, pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's, this is the life, isn't it? Not bad. That yeah. This is how we get to spend a, an afternoon mm. having having chats and mm. uh, bringing... About, in, about important things. About important things and bringing really amazing content uh, to the Pilates and broader movement stratosphere. Because I love that that our podcasts are reaching not just Pilates instructors, but they're getting in the ears of physiotherapists, of exercise physiologists, of yoga instructors, of clients of mine. So people that aren't actually involved in the realm of working with people in the the health and fitness industry, uh, but they've just got a curiosity in pilates and movement and yeah which is really cool yeah feels like feels like we're we're really building and tapping into a community yeah hey uh this week we're going to talk about uh pelvic floor pregnancy incontinence all of those fun things uh, well let's be honest raph they're kind of like the crack for the pilates world (laughs) That's why did, I said, did, them, did said I say, them in a special voice. Did I say pelvic floor? <laughs> <laughs> does that does that mean everyone has to do a push up or something? Or? <laughs> Cage line. Um, <laughs> couldn't help myself. So this, I'm I'm really excited to uh, be putting this interview that you did with uh, the incredible uh, women's health physio Sarah Hag, uh, who's from uh, the states. To be putting this out. She's from Entropy Wellness in Chicago, Illinois, where she works with the highly esteemed Sandy Hilton. And they're two women that I look up to so much um, in in the industry. And by the industry, I mean pain, rehab, movement, etc. And women's health. And women's health. Um they're just they're just fantastic 
talented, down-to-earth women that are... Scientifically literate. Extremely scientifically literate that are out there to really make a difference in, in human beings' lives and also to help elevate health literacy um, from a professional sense as well. So... For me, this interview you did with Sarah on all of those things you've just spoken about, um, it's such an empowering listen and when I first listened to it, I I mean, I was just cheering along. I was just like, (laughs) fucking love her so much. I'm just like, she's one of my idols. I just absolutely love her and every interaction I've had with her as well on social media what you see is what you get. Like she's fantastic and she's genuinely there to to help educate. Like she really is. You know, if I can message her with a question, we've never met before, we've never, you know, and she will do everything she can to help answer that question for me or send me in the right direction in regards to something. Like she's that kind of person. Um, and, yeah, I... We use this interview in our course, in our Cert 4, in our uh, prenatal and postpartum module and it's a real eye-opener for our students as well and their feedback is the same as my feedback from listening to this, is it's extremely empowering. You know, it, it women are not – and pregnant women and postpartum women are not these fragile – delicate flowers that we should be wrapping in cotton wool and you know not you know not doing anything other than kind of laying on their back and doing some leg slides or propped if you're post 16 weeks but you know what I'm saying it's like it's like no this is strong like and let's keep them strong and if let's get them strong for for childbirth and let's build them back up in that postpartum period but what I also love about this is that she empowers us as as practitioners to be able to have the conversations around incontinence, around pelvic organ prolapse, around all these things that I truly believe, you know, are still kind of, it's almost like it's taboo to talk about. And I feel like that a lot of our clients, our female clients feel like they just kind of have to suffer in silence with these things and they can't say actually no when I do that I do a little wee or you know can't talk to you about their pelvic organ prolapse that's affecting how they're feeling about their sex life and how they're feeling about themselves etc you know and I think listening to an interview like this also helps you realize how you can uh, be there to you don't have to know everything and absolutely like you do not have you don't have to be the specialist but it's about being open to having the conversation not being like oh pelvic organ prolapse Ooh, what do you mean it's like thank you for talking to me about that yeah. this is so freaking common 40 to 60 percent of women post in the postpartum period, have some degree of pelvic organ prolapse. Like, this is a really common thing. And sometimes I think if this was happening to dudes, this would be more kind of like talked about and there might be more research on it too. I don't know. I've had this feeling. It's just, anyway, this really will empower you to be able to have those conversations with your clients and be able to refer them on to a specialist who can genuinely help them with it? Because yeah. as Sarah says, you can help. You can help. You don't have to yeah. put up with doing yeah. the little wees when you're, you know, on the jump board, etc. You don't have to just live with it in silence. Yeah, 
So, sorry, I really overtook that, Raf. But I'm for. No, this is. <laughs> I'm yeah, a huge I mean, Sarah fan, and this interview to me was a real game changer. Mm. Um, and it's one I listen to frequently. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think um, I think everything you said, you know, really resonates. That there is a lot of fear, and there's a lot of kind of ick factor. I think, and a lot of kind of worry about oh is it is it is it an okay topic of conversation you know with my client um for people and there's also just a lot of bullshit information floating around that people think they need to cue pelvic floor in a certain way or not do curl ups if someone's got abdominal separation or you know and so i think you know this interview is great because sarah just sort of is very matter of fact about it and it's very easy to talk about things like incontinence i mean in fact she's written she's literally written a book on incontinence that's right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which i've read it it's an awesome book um and uh so that's a particular interest <laughs> so we we talked about that quite a bit but then you know like talking about pelvic uh pelvic organ prolapse talking about diastasis talking about postnatal exercise uh, talking about you know women's fears and the misinformation that's around and uh, and she just also just goes through some real like pragmatic stuff like should you cue pelvic floor and if so how you know when should you cue it when should you not cue it um you know what do you do for someone who's got an abdominal separation you know postpartum what do you do for someone who's got a pelvic organ prolapse in your class when they're doing the hundreds you know um so i think this is a, a really uh fantastic interview and uh, i think you're going to get a lot out of it if you if you like if you like our work you're going to love this Sarah Haag is a physical therapist and with Sandy Hilton is the co-owner of Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness Centre in Chicago, Illinois. Her area of interest is in treating the spine and pelvis with a specialisation in women's and men's pelvic health. She earned a Masters of Physical Therapy from Marquette University in 2002 and a Masters of Science in Women's Health and a Doctorate of Physical Therapy from Rosalind Franklin University in 2008. In 2009, Sarah was awarded a board certification as a women's health clinical specialist and was awarded the Certificate of Achievement in Pelvic Physical Therapy from the section on women's health. Sarah is also a registered yoga instructor. Sarah and I discuss many things related to pregnancy and exercise, starting with the the general guidelines for exercise during pregnancy and what you should and shouldn't do with your pregnant clients and how you should think of pregnant clients when you're giving them exercise through to pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain and what you as a group exercise teacher can do for your clients who have pelvic girdle pain during or after pregnancy diastasis recti abdominis or abdominal separation and finally one of sarah's most favorite topics and one on which she has just published a book, Urinary Incontinence. And we finish up with a very in-depth discussion on how to do a correct pelvic floor contraction and when you should and when you shouldn't cue your clients to contract their pelvic floor. If you're interested in any of these topics, I know you're going to get a lot out of my conversation with Sarah Haag. Uh, Sarah, great to talk to you. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, we first met in early 2018 at the San Diego Pain Summit where you gave a keynote presentation called Pregnancy Does Not Equal Pain. And um, that was pretty influential on me. And I'd like to start with pregnancy. 
if that's all right. Sounds perfect. Um, so for health and fitness professionals uh, in general, and including allied health professionals in my experience, there are a lot of common beliefs and a lot of anxiety around working with pregnant clients, even sort of healthy pregnant clients. Um, and I'd like to go through some of the most common ones, some of which you touched on in your presentation, some of which you touch on in your book or don't touch on, you go into depth in, in your book, and other ones that I've actually read. Um, you've, you've written various blog posts and podcasts and stuff that I've, I've uh, heard and seen. Um, so the first uh, thing I'd like to talk about is uh, pelvic pain and um, pregnancy-related pelvic pain. And in one of your uh, blog posts, you quote a statistic um, that uh, 72% of women experience pelvic pain during pregnancy. That's by Clinton et al. in 2017. And that sounds quite an alarmingly high number. But um, can, you, can you give us some context on that? And um, yeah, what 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 should we be worried about with regard to pelvic pain in pregnancy as exercise and health professionals? And what what shouldn't we be worried about? And how should we go? How should we approach the whole topic? Great question. So that stat was from um, the um, clinical practice guideline by Clinton et al. And it it is very common, but also a lot of times in studies, um, low back pain and pelvic girdle pain are are kind of lumped together. And if you look at the incidence of, of stuff like low back pain, SI joint pain, you know, depending on how the study defines it, the, the likelihood someone's going to experience that in their life, pregnant or not, is like 70 to 80%. Um, so while it seems really high, they're, they're, it just is very common. And outside of the pregnant population, very often people get better and move on. Um, other times, not so much, you know, um, low back pain is a, and pelvic, well, low back slash pelvic pain um, is a pretty expensive, challenging thing for healthcare systems around the world right now. But I guess I look at it as while the pain isn't normal, it's also not necessarily concerning um, so when I'm working with someone who happens to be pregnant and they're coming with pain, I really like to start out with, have they ever had any of these issues before? And when is it happening? Because if someone came to you not pregnant with low back pain, would that be very concerning to you? Right. It's a, it's a super common thing. It's, it's, you know, by some studies, it's the most, low back pain is the most uh, expensive healthcare complaint that we have in terms of days lost of work. Yeah. And days lived with disability and all of those things. So it's, it, I think, I think, and this is just my opinion that it becomes a bigger deal because when you're dealing with a woman who's pregnant, um, a lot of people get nervous, but to be perfectly frank. Um, and I think this was like my, one of my closing thoughts on at this talk in, um, in San Diego is that uh, pregnant ladies are really freaking tough. They're going to build a human and get it out of their body and they're going to live. Um, so the fact that they're having pain honestly isn't a sign necessarily that something is going wrong. Um, and, and I think that if we understand 
the changes that happen to a woman while she's pregnant and how that may or may not impact how she moves and how she's feeling. Um, we can just treat her like she's a human who just happens to be pregnant, which is, you know, if you have someone with low back pain and it hurts when they do a particular exercise, depending on your scope of practice, we have options, right? So maybe we modify it a little bit. Maybe we try to figure out why does that hurt and can we change it? Um, But again, like going back to even though like up to 70% of women may experience it at some point, most women get better. And I would say sometimes without us and sometimes in in spite of us, they they end up getting better. Right. Um, And it's the same with low back pain. So I guess the first point there is uh, correlation doesn't equal causation. And even though there is a very high prevalence of pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy, there's also a high prevalence of low back pain and pelvic girdle pain in people who've never been pregnant. So uh, being pregnant plus having pain doesn't necessarily suggest that being pregnant is the cause of the pain. But there are some sort of factors in pregnancy, as you alluded to at the end there, that do influence the likelihood of having pain. And uh, uh, I'm thinking of a study, I, I think O'Sullivan was one of the authors on it, where it said pregnancy is characterized by widespread tissue hypersensitivity. Um, and so increased um, sensitivity to pressure, to um, heat and cold um, and um, all over the body. And that the highest, the, the best predictor of pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy is a previous history of low back pain, which is also the best predictor of, a, of low back pain if you don't have, if you're not pregnant. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but there are also some kind of uh, other physiological and, and mechanical things that happen during pregnancy. So for instance, the first one is the the dreaded relaxin and the, I'm going to put air quotes around the words pelvic, <laughs> pelvic instability here. So yeah, talk to me Ooh. about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of my things. Um, so yes. So relaxin is, is a, is a hormone that, that increases during pregnancy. So Thankfully, you can make room for that growing baby on the insides and then get the baby out. Um, so, so yes, that is, is a factor. However, relaxant really impacts a lot of different areas. Like there's most of our joint, um, uh, most of our joints have relaxin receptors and relaxin goes all over the body. And for some reason, the only thing we attribute to relaxin is is this pelvic instability situation. Um, and then I, w- I would like to put the, yeah, those air quotes over that instability because the pelvis is inherently stable. Um, really the only way to make it unstable is to perhaps get yourself hit by a car um, or, fa- or fall down a, a, a bunch of stairs. Like it's, it's inherently stable. Um, however, there are times that and it does, I will be honest, I typically do see it in pregnancy where they, where these women will start to get like this difficulty transferring load and like maybe lifting up one leg. They can totally lift up one leg to put on their underwear, but then they have an issue with that other leg. And that isn't so much instability. In fact, there um, is at least one study suggesting that perhaps it's not so much the joint laxity that is the problem, but it's the asymmetry in the laxity where sometimes maybe one joint gets a little bit stiff or isn't moving quite as well as the other one and that that's actually 
may be the reason why it's a more a little bit more of a challenge to transfer that load. Um, so mm-hmm. pregnant ladies, don't fear. <laughs> Your pelvis isn't unstable, but that unstable feeling is very real. But the reason for it um, might not be what you think it is. Right. And, 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 it might be oh. like you know smudged body mapping due to like the the just the rapid growth of the tissues. It might be altered joint proprioception and like you say stiffness and again i can't recall the author's names but there was a study on uh, postpartum women with persistent pregnancy related pelvic girdle pain that that implanted radioopaque markers into their Mm -hmm. pelvis and they found and then got them to do a stereo they did a stereometric fluoroscopic x-ray in real time while they were stood on one leg and essentially did the stalk test and they found something like 0.2 degrees of rotation in the painful side of the mm-hmm. sacroiliac joint. And so essentially, like that joint, like you say, is highly stable. But but painful. And that's yes. where, you know, having that good understanding of, you know, what pain is and, and what pain isn't. And pain is very real and a very real experience. Mm. Um, but very often we want to attribute it to something. So we pick something. And then people run with it, even though we don't know that that's what's happening. Um, and so, and it, I think a great example is that not all pregnant women hurt, but every right. single preg- pregnant woman has has relaxing. Has relaxing. Yeah. So how would you approach? You know, just kind of from a, a maybe the ten thousand foot view, how would you approach a pregnant lady? Because, like you say, symphysis pubis pain in pregnancy is very real. A sacroiliac joint pain is very real but maybe it's not caused by in quotes instability um so how would you approach working with a woman who had those symptoms during pregnancy getting a really good history one um at least here in the states pregnant women get watched really really closely so i already i will either know about any medical concerns um for mom or for for baby um so i'll you know we've already ruled out kind of the nasty stuff and um, and then I want to know how does this pain behave and what are the things that you can't do because of it? So again, very frequently, it's stuff like getting up out of a chair. Very frequently, it's um, doing the stairs, trying to get your pants on, getting down to the floor to play with your three-year-old, um, and then kind of assess how they're doing that. So I'll have them try to show me and I can do some general assessments about um, their general spine mobility. Mm-hmm. I don't do tens, tons of SI joint tests on my, um, on my pregnant patients, not necessarily because they're pregnant and can't be on their back because most of them could be at least for some time. Um, if I do those things, the most it's going to tell me is that they hurt where they told me they hurt already. <laughs> Right. Those and tests could, have been shown. They're, they're good tests of do you have pain when you lift your leg up, but they're not much, really a good test of anything else. Exactly. And, and if they already said it hurts when I lift up my leg, I just made them hurt one more time right. with no new information as the result. So I'm much more interested in, okay, so how is this going? And then I try something. And to be perfectly honest, um, so often um, – a lot of these women have, have changed their activity levels, either because they're, they're busy or they don't know what to do. Be, you know, is it safe to keep working out at the gym? So a lot of them have become more sedentary. So I want to just see if I can get them moving in ways they're not already moving throughout the day. So if walking's feeling good, but they're not doing much walking, you know what? We take a walk and then I have them try those activities again. 
Um, sometimes I'll have them do some lumbar extension. And this freaks out a lot of people because even not pregnant people are sometimes told to not extend their spines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we'll try a couple different ways to just stretch and move again, usually into ways they haven't done already. And then see if that impacts how well things are moving. Because if the problem is a stiff joint, what do you think we should do for a stiff joint? Mm-hmm. Try to move it. Yeah, it also seems like there's a just kind of a general exercise component there as, as well in terms of just getting people moving and mm-hmm. also a de-threatening of some of those maybe feared kind of movements. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and... S- so uh, I want to um, just sort of touch on for because you're 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 a women's health physiotherapist and a clinical you know allied health professional. So what about for somebody working in a more of a group exercise situation? If they have a pregnant woman in their class and maybe the pregnant woman you know has sticks their hand up at the start of class and says I get pain in my SI joint or I get pain in my symphysis pubis or, or whatever, how would you approach that in a more of a group exercise situation where you're not necessarily trying to solve the problem for that person, but you're just trying to give them a great workout whilst not putting them through agony. Absolutely. And I, I would say, especially half the time beforehand is to, is to just let them know like, Hey, grab my attention when we're doing something and you're feeling your discomfort and then see if you can modify it. So depending on the type of fitness professional you are, um, so, you know, like, let's say, um, I know that, uh, that, you know, Pilates is, is one of those things that a lot of pregnant women want to do while they're pregnant to stay fit and keep their core very strong. Um, in a particular Pilates exercise, would it help to have a small lumbar roll? Would it help to have some leg support? Should the legs be on the floor instead of in the air? And to just kind of modify it so that it feels less painful but that they can still do the exercise. Right. So, so I, would, I would go based on modification. Of right. So basically the, your approach there is like just the normal approach you would use with anyone with an ache or a pain, which is to reduce the load, change the position, reduce the range of motion, those kinds of things. Exactly. Um, I want to backtrack just a little bit and I will probably edit this out and put it at the start. Um, <laughs> Um, because I want to, I want to ask you um, just a uh, like a kind of a background question on you, because in in Australia we are called PTs. Uh, PT means personal trainer, mm-hmm. and uh, we we have women's health physios in Australia, and it's a titled um, kind of profession. Like you can't just call yourself a women's health physio; it's, it has to be conferred by the Australian College of Physiotherapists. Um, but there's a a lot of most people don't really understand what that is. Um, and so could you just give me a little background on, because you're a women's health physio and you also have a PhD in, what well, is your PhD well, in? So actually, so actually it's not a PhD, it's a DPT. So it's a doctorate of physical therapy, which right. is, um, they would consider that like a clinical doctorate. Right. Okay. So it's, um, not, by re- it's not by research. It's, it's correct. a clinical qualification okay and so yes. what what is what is a women's health physio and how how is that different to just a regular physiotherapist so so here in the states anyone actually could call themselves a women's health physio but typically the way we would consider it is that you've had some postgraduate training 
um, to better understand um, all of the functions of the pelvis and extending into understanding the um, physiology of pregnancy and um, also, so when I took my specialty exam, it included like breast cancer and um, postmenopausal issues and osteoporosis. So kind of the issues that deal with women that you've achieved some additional training in that area. Probably what makes us the most different from other physios would be that we are trained in um, internal pelvic floor exams. So the pelvic floor lives in the base of the pelvis and a lot of people will refer to it as the floor of the core, but kind of not know more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can actually assess those, that, those skeletal muscles internally, um, either via the vagina or the rectum, um, anus. And yeah, so then we can assess those muscles and how well they're contracting and relaxing. Um, and, and if there's any reproduction of pain during that exam, And it can be really helpful because it's an area of the body a lot of people aren't familiar with. And depending on social context and religious context and just your general comfort with yourself, a lot of people, if it's working well, they never think about how it's working well. (laughs) And so then when it starts to not work quite so well, it can be quite confusing. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is that added knowledge of what's happening in the pelvis, what's supposed to be happening, things that can go wrong in the pelvis, and then how to assess it internally. Right. And so that's, uh, and you, you're an educator as well, you know, you're a prolific kind of blogger and presenter and podcaster and um, as well as a clinician. And so you are in Chicago, uh, and yeah, so how does your kind of week or month or year look in terms of mixture between clinical practice and and this kind of stuff or being on the road or educating? Um, it honestly is 100% opportunity dependent. So um, I own Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness with Sandy Hilton, and she is also a much more prolific podcaster and educator. Um, and just she's recently back from France for two weeks teaching. Um, so basically we... It just depends on what comes up. So for instance, the rest of this year, I believe I'm going to Finland and the Netherlands and Belgium and Vancouver. And I apologize to whomever I'm forgetting, but um, it just is a matter of um, the opportunity and then making sure we can make it work with our clinic. Typically though, um, if we're not traveling, we're in the clinic five, six, and sometimes seven days a week. And and what does your what does a sort of a typical day in the clinic look like for you? Like so, what what would what's your kind of most common type of client or client presentation? I don't know that I have a typical anymore. Um, it, well, if I were to really bucket it, I would just say people who maybe haven't really done well elsewhere. Um, not because I'm particularly exceptional therapist, though I do try. Um, we have a very interesting um, setting where it looks like um, kind of a comfortable loft. We have brick walls and beamed ceilings and comfortable chairs that aren't clinic chairs. And um, both, both Sandy and I um, really have figured out that taking the time to listen and being lucky enough to have the time to take to listen 
um, because of the fact we work outside of um, commercial insurances for the most part. We get to see one person at a time every hour. And the diagnoses, at least on my caseload right now, range from seeing gentlemen pre-prostatectomy to um, I see a lot of low back pain and, and pelvic pain, dyspareunia or pain with intercourse. And um, I actually haven't seen pregnant too many pregnant ladies in the, in the last six months. Prior to that, I had like about eight on my caseload at a time, but <laughs> the last six months, not so much. Right. Before we move on, let's take a little break. Hey, Raph here. If you're out there in the world thinking, gee, I'm a pretty awesome Pilates instructor and everyone's telling you you're awesome, but then sometimes a client asks you a question and you think, fuck, I feel like an idiot now because I think, feel like I should know the answer to that, but I don't know the answer to that. So I'm just going to smile and say, why don't you do footwork instead? And um, sometimes you feel like you're faking it and you can't really understand what's going on inside people's bodies, well, come and do a Q&A with me every week. We do a live one and it's called Stop Faking It and Really Know Your Stuff. And it really could should be called Stop Faking It Really Know Your Shit. But um, it's called Stop Faking It Really Know Your Stuff. So that's where you come and ask me questions about anything related to anatomy, biomechanics, why does my shoulder hurt in this exercise, what's this muscle for, anything, whatever. A client's got this weird medical condition, what is it? Yeah, whatever questions you've got. Come and ask me. So let's uh, sort of shift back into talking about pregnancy now. And I want to touch on uh, another topic, which is something that's kind of a big unknown and, and has a lot of anxiety. And I, I think a lot of misconceptions around it, which is diastasis recti abdominis or DRAM, which is mm -hmm. the abdominal separation. Um, that happens during pregnancy very commonly. And uh often goes away postpartum all by itself, but sometimes doesn't. Um, so firstly, um, can you just give us a bit of background? So how common of a problem, is, how common is diastasis and what kind of problems are associated with it? Um, I would say it's, it's very common, especially towards the end of pregnancy. I mean, there are some articles that say 100% of women will experience it to some degree. And, um, and while I'm not, I'm not sure about actually 100%, but it is, it is very, very common. And it seems to be a very logical, physiological thing to happen when you're stretching so many things so far right. that we would want that connective tissue to give a little bit so that we don't tear the active, you know, like the actual um, muscle fibers. So right. it, it seems like a pretty clever way to get around that. Um, Honestly, like what's associated with it, not much. So a lot of people would like to attribute low back pain or incontinence or um, pelvic girdle pain or um, even pain with intercourse, any of these things with um, DRAM, but it's really not supported in the evidence. There are some people who obviously have those issues without ever having even had a baby and then there are also people who, um, who continue to, who have a relatively large um, separation between those muscles and actually no functional deficits or complaints. So it's kind of like this little group in the middle and between them who happen to have a diastasis and are having other issues. Um, and so the way I 
you didn't ask this, but the way I kind of approach it is it, that it's it, my next question. Oh, perfect. I'm psychic. Um, is that it, it, it might matter when it matters, if it matters, um, which is good, I think, because some women, it's just going to resolve. Other women, not so much. And for those women, we really need to look at what issues they are still having. And I'd like to ask them, okay, is this, and absolutely no judgment, this is a safe place. Like, is this an aesthetic concern? Does it not look good? And does that bother you? Because that actually is the one thing associated with, with the diet, the DRAM is poor body image. Right. Um, so that's, that is the one thing that is associated with that. And that's real. And we, sh- and we should look at that. Um, the other is pain. Like, are you having pain somewhere? Whether or not it has anything to do with that, let's take a look and see what we can do. Um, or is it like a functional issue? Some women, when they do have those really large separations and they have trouble creating tension in the middle, they feel unstable. They feel like they can't lift heavy things. They feel like, um, you know, it's hard to hold themselves up. Okay. Then we're going to have to figure out, can we change that feeling? Um, Cause I am firmly in the camp that that separation, we can change how the middle is working but we can't change the length of that connective tissue between right. the two sides of the rectus. And there's, there's no uh, research showing that exercise can get rid of uh, diastasis. Correct. But there is some or admittedly poor quality research suggesting that exercise pre, uh, prenatally can, is protective to a certain degree. Um, it, that is true. And, um, and actually even postpartum, there is some evidence that doing something (laughs) is much better than doing nothing. Um, so again, most of the people I see postpartum for a DRAM are, they're, they're like having some issues, but mostly they're not sure what they're safe to do. So they're actually not even having pain or functional issues or even particularly bothered, um, by by the appearance they're like just i love to work out but i was told i can't do this and i can't do this and i can't do this so just as much as there's no evidence that one particular exercise is going to magically fix your abdominal separation there is also at least not that i could find any evidence of any particular exercise or movement that would quote unquote make it worse Right, and that's a massive fear. I think that's the the biggest concern that because I train people to be Pilates instructors, and that is by far the biggest concern that my students have around diastasis is like, oh, what if I make it worse? Um, and so there's a lot of uh, kind of common the common belief is you should avoid abdominal exercises or avoid particularly avoid um, abdominal curls, um, you know, for fear that you might make the diastasis bigger um Mm -hmm. and yeah so where do you sit on that um i sit on the fact that um that paul hodges and diane lee did a pretty great study i guess it's three or four years old now Um, the the ultrasound one on the linear alba mm -hmm, right and what and do you remember what happened when they did the curl up uh got narrower and just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the based on everything I read, like the the clinical mindset I have is that it 
So while it is true that there are people who have diastases who have never been pregnant, most of them are men and most of them don't care <laughs> and don't have any issues. Um, uh, I've had several men go like, can you take a look at this? And I, I look at it and I ask them to try some things. They're like, yeah, I don't care that much. Um, but for the ladies um, with the diastasis, most of the time it happened during pregnancy. And that was a slow stretch of those tissues <laughs> over the course of 10 months. So you twisting while you flex or you doing a curl up is not ever going to produce the force that a child on your inside created. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. I never thought of that. And someone could tell me that I'm completely wrong and I would love to learn more, but in my brain, I can just not reconcile how one, one wrong move and you're going to pull it all apart. We're just not that delicate. Right. And, and there is a bunch of literature on prenatal and postnatal exercise and particularly abdominal exercise and diastasis rectus. And it does show essentially very little effect one way or the other, but if anything, a trend towards positive, like it, mm -hmm. it reduces the diastasis. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so do you give up pregnant women abdominal exercises? Um, I do if they want me to. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to talk about like, so what are their goals? Most of the time, if women are coming into me with pain, it is more of a mobility issue versus a stability issue. You know, if they can walk in standing upright, they've, they've got enough core to get through the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, exercise might make them feel better, including abdominal exercises, but it's not a matter of, oh, you're too weak and that's why you hurt. Right, so, so you, wouldn't, you wouldn't particularly target the abdominals unless there was a reason to. Correct. But, but there's no reason to avoid working the abdominals. I, I, I have not seen anything that would indicate we need to, to, to not, to avoid, to, to avoid exercising the abs. Um, again, I think we have the most evidence, even though it's not, again, super strong, is that if we keep muscles strong and moving, even when they get super stretched out, the recovery is going to be better. Um, so what I would say is just if women want to keep doing abs and they've been doing abs, there's no um, indication that they should stop doing that. Again, unless it starts to hurt, we should check that out. If their doctor tells them to for a medical issue, um, those are the only two times I would question it. Um, sometimes women will ask me specifically, what should they do? And honestly, pregnant or no pregnancy, I'm like, well, what would you like to do? Yeah, <laughs> Why do you want to do the abs? <laughs> let's get you moving however you want to get moving. You know. Yes. Okay. Um, so what about, uh, and this is, uh, maybe it's not sort of top of mind for a lot of people, but it is something that uh, people come across from time to time, which is pelvic organ prolapse. Uh, as you know, during or as a result of pregnancy. So can you kind of just briefly explain what that is? And then uh, what, what, if anything, can non-pelvic health professionals do to help women who have pelvic organ prolapse? And are there things we should avoid or special cues or body positions that are best? Or can we just give general exercise or can exercise even help? You know, should we, be, should we be just simply referring these people with pelvic organ prolapse to women's health physiotherapists and take it from there? Or, you know, how should we approach? Yeah, so what, what is pelvic organ prolapse? And then what, if anything, uh, can non-pelvic health professionals do about it? Okay. So 
pelvic organ prolapse, it, that is basically when um, one of the pelvic organs, so typically it's going to be either the bladder, the uterus, or the rectum, starts to lose its support that's helping hold it up in, in our abdominal cavity, and it starts to descend. And when it starts to descend, depending on what, which of those three organs are starting to descend, or if all three of them are, um, they can start to descend and push into the, the wall of the vagina. And if they continue to descend, it can push the wall of the vagina down to the opening of the vagina. And then in some cases in like third or fourth degree prolapse actually start to come out of the vagina. So in my head, it's a little bit like um, if you're camping and someone in the campsite next to you had a little bit too much to drink and they stumbled over into your campsite and they fell into your tent. So they're like on the outside of your tent, <laughs> but they are pushing into your tent. So that's kind of what a prolapse is in my brain. Um, and, and are there any exercises that can fix it? Fix it, I would say no. Manage it, yes. So if we go back to, the, I think what the last question you, you were asking is like, should they just be referred to a pelvic, um, pelvic floor physio, I would say yes, so that they could really be sure that their pelvic floor is functioning as well as they can to see if they might um, benefit from a pessary of some sort, at least during their um, more high-level activities, and to just so that the woman knows what's really happening down there. Pelvic organ prolapse can be really no big deal. So there's a normal degree of movement with our pelvic organs, but then if they start to descend enough, um, they can start feeling not so much pain, but like some people describe it as a feeling of like a dry tampon or, um, or a feeling of like pressure or a bulge down at the bottom. And so it's not usually pain. And a lot of women figure out themselves that they can just kind of push it back in. <laughs> um, Right. And, and then it's okay for a bit. So pelvic organ prolapse isn't necessarily always a problem. It just depends on the degree for that woman. Um, so if you imagine like that intra-abdominal cavity, if a woman coughs a whole bunch of times, there's a whole bunch of force, right, in all directions. And if the bladder, let's say, isn't really, really well supported anymore by those ligaments on the inside, that con like three, four, five coughs, all of a sudden it's sitting at the opening of the vagina. Right. For her. So, oh, go ahead. So your, your bladder, your large intestine, your uterus are all sort of supported by various fascial structures and ligaments that attach them to the, the, the fascial, like the mesentery of the abdomen, which is the fascia at the front of the abdomen and the spine and the ribs and so on, and essentially hold them in place. So when you for instance, you know, lie on your side or if your organs don't fall off <laughs> the side of your right. body. Um, so, and that's just a normal kind of way that humans are put together. And sometimes during pregnancy, because there's a lot of downward pressure by the, the weight of the fetus and the uterus, it can kind of stretch out those ligaments and those fascial structures a little bit so that the, essentially the seat belt holding the uterus or the bladder or, or whatnot in place becomes a little stretched. So it, they can they kind of hang a bit lower as it were and they can press down on the on the kind of roof of the wall of the vagina and so 
anything that kind of increases the pressure inside the abdomen, like coughing or probably doing the Valsalva maneuver, like bracing, like going, mm-hmm. if you lift something yep. heavy or go to the bathroom, um, these things can probably exacerbate the prolapse, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, sh- so should we be worried about, uh, you know, causing a problem for people during exercise and if someone has a prolapse and maybe they have seen a pelvic health physio but now they just want to kind of come along and do some fitness moves mm-hmm. you know what what if any considerations do we need to be aware of um i would say it's um if you end up how can i say this okay Basically, the woman is the only one who's going to know if she is if she is feeling these things change. And so, if someone if it's known that a woman has a prolapse, what I would do um, in a general fitness setting is to just educate. Look, if we're doing things that are starting to give you that feeling of prolapse, let us know and let's see if we can modify it. So, I had a patient once. So, I'm not a Pilates instructor, but I'm familiar with a couple of the moves. Um, I had a patient who was told Pilates would help her pelvic floor and she was doing it. She also had a grade four prolapse, um, which is when it basically her, her uterus was basically just falling out. Um, during the day she was pretty okay, but it would definitely happen during Pilates and definitely happen when hiking. Mm -hmm. So she was showing me, and this is the, the perk of being a pelvic floor therapist. I was able to actually, visualize and and palpate what her muscles were doing when she tried to do um, the hundred. And so she lifted up her head, she started to move her arms and her uterus just pushed my fingers right out of the way. And I was like, so I think maybe not doing this for a bit um, until we can figure out how to manage those intra-abdominal pressures. So when she would do it, she would mostly just Valsalva and was just pushing everything right out. So for her, we worked about three weeks on you know starting with her feet back down so kind of reducing the load could she figure out how to get her pelvic floor and her core to activate and breathe while she tried to start moving her arms and all of those things Um, and then we were able to progress her to where she could put her legs back in the air Um, but it was just a matter of you know she's like it feels like I'm pushing it out (laughs) And I was like, you totally are. Because she is, and, yeah. Because <laughs> you are. Um, so if you can modify that and if you can do it with verbal cues or, or modification, that's awesome. But I would also say that's a pretty strong indicator to maybe send her um, or hint well, her <laughs> to a pelvic floor therapist um, who, could, who could assess what's going on and maybe what, what they could work on to have a stronger pelvic floor, a thicker pelvic floor and go from there. Right. So for somebody uh, teaching an, an exercise class, if you have a woman in your class who discloses to you that they've had a pelvic organ prolapse, um, th- you know, really there's not any particular exercise to avoid. It's more, it's just things that have high load and where the women might do a Valsalva and kind of bear down on that. Or maybe things like jumping, would jumping or deep squatting be particularly problematic or is it really just the load? I would say particularly challenging. So jumping and, and squats, especially if you know if you if you have your feet a good distance apart, then it's really just your pelvic floor in charge of holding everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes changing like the pelvic tilt. So some women um, have a little bit better luck and feel a little bit more um, supported or a little bit less of the bulge if they increase their anterior tilt, mm-hmm. which is sometimes the opposite of what 
a cue might be in some cases, mm -hmm. um, but to just kind of play with it, it's not contraindicated. Um, and also I would say much like the diastasis during pregnancy um, or postpartum, like it's, it, it's going to be a, a challenge to make it worse. You might do things that make it more noticeable, but I also think that that shouldn't be confused with, with making it worse. Right. So if okay. you, if, if a woman is in your class with a prolapse and she does squat and bear down, or if she does her hundreds and pushes her uterus out or something, <laughs> it, she's not going to explode essentially. I mean, she can just kind of go into the bathroom, push it back in and go on with her day. Yes. And, and that's definitely probably like if, if it's to that extreme, um, then I would say like, definitely we should be talking to doctors and, right. um, you know, would a pessary be appropriate and all of these things. But, you know, let's say that she, she did the squats and she felt it kind of push out. And then she, she tried some modifications and she's like, huh, I don't feel it pushing out so much. Well, there you have it. Like try that for a bit and let's see, see how it goes. Because much like closing the separation between the rectus muscles, right. Um, that's connective tissue and the connective tissue is the same thing. Well, not the same thing, but that's what the ligaments were holding up your bladder, um, your uterus and such. So if that connective tissue is stretched out really from then on out, it's either like surgical repairs can, can re-support things or you can modify the symptoms. Right. And, uh, I want to get uh, into a bit of depth about, um, your advice on doing a proper pelvic floor contraction in a minute, um, which I which will kind of um, loop back to what you said about te you teaching that woman with the hundred to do a proper pelvic floor contraction uh, to support her pelvic organs. Um, but I want to just uh, move on to uh, a big one that is probably not a concern for a lot of instructors. But actually, when I told my wife that I was going to be interviewing you. Um, she said, "Oh, can you ask her? Can you ask her this?" <laughs> um, and it's it's because um, uh, incontinence is kind of like your thing. Yeah. Um, in fact, you've written a you literally wrote write the book on it. Um, I and, did. I wrote a book on it. <laughs> um, and uh, my wife's seen me reading it over the last couple of weeks, and she's like, "Oh, that's the incontinence lady. Can you ask her?" And so basically. <laughs> Um, what she wanted to ask was like when she's in a group of women and they're talking, you know, the subject of pregnancy comes up, which it does kind of around the age that we're at. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of our friends have sort of youngish kids and there's, there's very commonly, there's some kind of like joke about like, Oh, when I cough, I, you know, leak or, or whatever. And that's seen, and that's seen as a completely normal, unavoidable sort of part of having kids and that kind of really makes my wife feel uncomfortable with like no, that shouldn't be normal like people you shouldn't that you shouldn't just accept that you know that we can probably do something about that so and I know that's a massive theme of your book so firstly in terms of incontinence like what's normal uh continence is normal um so so being dry is is normal um and an incontinence while very very common isn't normal. So even, you know, I had someone once online reach out and they're like, you know, like, I mean, like I have a neurological issue and this happens. I'm like, I like, I totally get that. And I'm sorry for any offense I caused, but your, your system isn't working within the norms. You're working outside of the norms. Um, 
so, so really like to put it very, very bluntly, like continence is the normal. Right. Incontinence so is common. So we shouldn't, you know, women particularly, mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's, it's an issue for men as well, particularly in relation to uh, prostatectomies and things, but um, you know, in relation to pregnancy, women shouldn't just kind of resign themselves to a, a future of, you know, running to the bathroom or wearing sanitary incontinence pads. The short answer is yes. Um, we actually, so in the world of physio, there's there's all forever ongoing discussions about the best interventions for things and 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 citing evidence for this and that. But to be perfectly frank, as far as I can tell, we have the best evidence of anything in physiotherapy that pelvic floor exercises can treat and cure stress incontinence and mixed incontinence, which is a combination of stress incontinence and urge incontinence. So we have great evidence that this can be addressed. Um, So during pregnancy, there's a lot of reasons why women start to experience it. Some women experience it very early on um, due to some hormonal changes. (laughs) Um, And then women, where it makes even more sense is that they continue to have the hormonal changes, but now they have a five to nine pound baby (laughs) sitting on top of their bladder, making a huge change in the in the space and the location mm-hmm. um, of, of the bladder. And so it makes sense that perhaps your bladder doesn't hold as much. You need to go a little more often um, and that maybe you leak a bit. In spite of those completely understandable cir- circumstances, I still really, I still really encourage women to try to be continent, <laughs> um, you know, to work on their pelvic floor exercises throughout pregnancy, even if they aren't having issues. Um, and then like, like the second the baby's out and they can think of it, regardless of if it was a vaginal delivery or a cesarean section, to start doing them again, <laughs> um, to start rehabbing and recovering those muscles. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So um, I want to unpack a couple of those things there. So you mentioned um, urge incontinence and stress incontinence, which uh, I learned in your book are the two most common causes of incontinence. Mm-hmm. So can you just unpack a little bit what, what, is urge incontinence and what's the lock-in-key syndrome and also what's what's stress incontinence? Okay, so urge incontinence is when you lose urine preceded by a very, very strong urge. And key and lock syndrome is something where I'm like, there's actually a name for that. People are like, oh, I've experienced that for years, is where you have to go to the bathroom and you can feel that you do have, you know, I could go to the bathroom. But as you get closer to your house, and you get your key out to go in the house and you're like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then you put your key in the, in the lock and all of a sudden, like you empty your bladder, <laughs> like get a very strong urge and, and you can't wait anymore. What it feels like is that your kidneys just dumped four liters of urine into your bladder <laughs> and everything just exploded. But in reality, it's more of um, uh, an inappropriate contraction um, of that detrusor muscle around your bladder that just it, it won it, it it overcame the pelvic floor and you had to leak okay and what's what's uh stress incontinence stress incontinence is a small amount of leakage typically a small amount of leakage that happens during an increase in intra-abdominal pressure and so most people are familiar with like oh i when i laugh a lot with my girlfriends I leak a little bit, or if I cough or sneeze, I leak, or if I run or jump, I leak. 
Um, so the, those are the most common, kind of the most common things. So I think people talk a lot more about stress incontinence and find it a lot more normal. Um, urge incontinence, I, at least as of late, people are finding it very understandably distressing. And, um, but they really don't talk about it as much as they do stress incontinence. Mm. And, you know, I know that's a big one. Uh, my friend, Anthony Lowe, who I know you also mm-hmm. um, are friends with, works a lot with female CrossFit athletes, and it's a, a huge problem because they're yeah. always doing jumping rope and deep squats and things like that. Um, so, all right. So for people with incontinence, um, you know, you said kind of the go-to or the best evidence that we have is for pelvic floor training. Um, so can you kind of talk, can you talk me through, why pelvic floor training seems to be so effective. Like, you know, there's a whole system in there, like you said, the relaxation of the detrusor muscle, you've got a uh, uh, urethral sphincter, there's a whole kind of system uh, maintaining continence or controlling um, the flow of urine. So why, why focusing on the pelvic floor seems to be so effective? Well, great question. So first of all, we don't know exactly, exactly, why it helps. Um, I was just reading, reading a couple articles and it's like, so is it that the pelvic floor is now like more hypertrophied? Is it that the pelvic floor is now more coordinated and more integrated into that system? Um, are we able to use the pelvic floor, which is voluntary to help control like the internal sphincter or the detrusor, not control them, but communicate better with them? Um, to, to, to manage strong urges or that leakage that might be happening. So I think we don't know exactly, just like we don't know why, like, like, like we know people who are, we, people can have pain who aren't weak, yet doing strengthening <laughs> seems to make them feel better. So there's a lot of mechanisms I think we don't quite know. And continence, the storage of urine and the emptying of the bladder is actually very complex. And um, so I approach it as a, as a pelvic floor physio is just what are the things that we can change? Um, and, and if I squeeze my pelvic floor, there should be kind of this nice reciprocal relationship because the internal urinary sphincter and the detrusor muscle, those are smooth muscles. So they should kind of do their thing, though they can get some hiccups or get a little out of whack sometimes. But the, um, the detrusor muscle should stay relaxed as the bladder fills up and the pelvic floor and those sphincters are responsible for keeping the urethra closed. So the pressure on the inside of the bladder and the inside of the intra-abdominal cavity, as long as that is lower than the pressure pinching uh, or closing that urethra, not really pinching, but keeping it closed, um, then you stay dry. But if the pressure inside of the bladder um, or inside plus the pressure of the inside of the intra-abdominal cavity overcomes that closure pressure of the urethra, that's when leakage happens. Um, so um, I think that's interesting because there, it is like this whole system, but there's a part of that system we can't talk to directly. We kind of have to go through, maybe think about like an interpreter. So when everything's working well, when you go to the bathroom and relax your pelvic floor, that detrusor is like, ooh, I can squeeze and we can get everything out where the rest of the time the detrusor should be relaxed and your pelvic floor should not be clenched, but it's, it's active. It's doing its thing. Those sphincters are closed. So there should be that relationship. 
Right. And so because the pelvic floor is a skeletal muscle, or in other words, it's a muscle that produces a, a movement of the skeleton, it's under mm-hmm. it's able to be under conscious control, whereas smooth muscle is the type of muscle that we have in our intestines or our um, it's similar to cardiac muscle in, in the heart in some ways, that basically is it's not we're not able to consciously contract our intestinal muscle or um, indeed the, the sphincters are in the um, urethra. But you suspect, we don't know, but you suspect there might be some kind of reciprocal effect when we work the pelvic floor, it might interact with the those other smooth muscles which are normally not under voluntary control it, it probably there probably is some kind of integration between those muscles mm-hmm. yeah. um, or maybe just getting a bigger stronger pelvic floor is to increase the amount of pressure that we can withstand might also just be part of the part of the picture yeah and then another thing that i think I think some pelvic floor physios that I've met sometimes miss is to, again, put that pelvic floor back into the body, right? So like if you do Kegels and you're really good, you know, just doing like squeezing the pelvic floor, that's great. But do you know how to integrate that back into when you're doing the hundred? (laughs) Because you shouldn't be clenching your pelvic floor all day long. Right. Okay. That so, won't work. So let's so let's get into you know the really I think what for a lot of people uh, listening to this will be the sixty four thousand dollar question, which is how do you do a pelvic floor contraction? Like particularly, how should we teach a pelvic floor contraction to a client? Uh, and this again, this is in a general exercise context, so it's pants on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you even teach a correct pelvic floor contraction in that setting? You know, should they be seeing a women's health physio to learn that and then just come and practice it in your class? Or, you know, how, how would you approach that in a general fitness setting? Great question. So I think if women aren't sure or they're having trouble doing it or they're having issues like incontinence or feelings of prolapse, absolutely refer to a pelvic floor physio. Um, Because again, sometimes just having those like tactile cues during the vaginal exam, or even just having that confirmation of like, yep, you're doing it right. Great work. Keep it up. Mm -hmm. Um, Can be really helpful. However, I do think that um, knowing how to contract your pelvic floor properly doesn't necessarily involve uh, a visit to a a specialist. Um, So I do think you can walk people through it. However, you will not know if they're doing it correctly or not because you can't assess it. So they would just have to be able to, if we can kind of tell them what things, or actually it's easier for me on a one-on-one basis. But actually even during my classes, I will ask this. I would ask people to tell me what they are feeling when they try to contract their pelvic floor. So uh, what I might do, and I do do this during my class, so I'll just have people sit how they're sitting. And I will have them do what they think is a pelvic floor contraction. And this might be worth it depending on the, on the setup of the class to just take five minutes so that there's time to talk and, and figure it out. But if they, I, I ask people to contract their pelvic floors and then I ask them and I watch them do it from afar and I ask them what they felt when it happened. So if I were to say, contract your pelvic floor, tell me what did you feel? What would you say? Uh, kind of a lifting, um, pulling together of like the sits bones pulling together. Excellent. Um, some people will, and, and people will say that. Some people will say, I felt like my, my anal sphincter clench up and, and lift up a little bit. Some people might feel actually like a movement. Um, and actually gentlemen have a, a built-in biofeedback unit. 
<laughs> is like, like their genitals should move a bit. Um, ladies, our, ours do as well, but it's much more subtle. So if they're saying that they felt movement, but I didn't see much movement, they're probably on the right track. So knowing that they're feeling stuff basically like in the undercarriage or in the area that would be on a bike seat, yep. we're on the right track. But then I ask them, how did you do that? Tell me. So like when you contract your pelvic floor, what do you, what do you tell yourself to do? Uh, what do I tell myself to do? I kind of, mm -hmm. I don't use a, like a verbal instruction for myself, but it's just kind of a feeling of lifting. Okay, perfect. And you know, there's, um, there's a really interesting um, study that I love to quote from um, Paul Hodges group on finding the most effective cue, verbal cue for pelvic floor contraction. And he did do it in males, but it was really fun last year when he was here in Chicago, we were talking about it. And gosh darn it, if I didn't actually really love that, how it, like the cue and how it, how it felt when I did it um, as a female. So some people will say to like, squeeze your sphincter, like you don't want to pass gas. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go ahead and do it. And, and most people will say, yeah, I feel it. I feel it in the back. And there's a lot of, that's where a large part of the, the meaty part of our pelvic floor. Plus we have our sphincters there. So if people are having trouble feeling their pelvic floor, I recommend they do try that because if you're going to feel it, you're going to feel it there. Mm -hmm. However, if you're having urinary incontinence, the issue is much more anterior. It's at, it's at the front. <laughs> exactly. So, and most people can recognize that. So then we start to play. Before I go into other cues, I just have them kind of slouch with like what quote unquote terrible posture, roll back onto their kind of like onto the back part of their sits bones and even onto their tailbone a little bit and to do that pelvic floor contraction again. So if you, if you said squeeze the sphincter or the lift or whatever you used, do it again and feel where you feel it. Mm -hmm. And then I have them do the opposite and I have them sit way up and stick that tailbone up like a very happy puppy and then squeeze again. And it's more at the front. And it's more at the front. So then we're starting to think, okay, so if your problem's more at the front, maybe this is a place where we want to be more, maybe when we're walking. Again, not to clench, but just to kind of favor the front of the pelvic floor. Um, so like after feeling that, then we can play around with different cues. Um, the cue that seemed to work best for, for activating like the anterior part of the male pelvic floor is actually shorten the penis. And right. I know when I first read that, I'm like, nobody's going to do this, but everybody does and everybody can. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting to me. So if you imagine that and, and even though I do not have a penis and I, and I imagine that it, it is the most interesting anterior contraction, still a lift, but it's, um, it's again, it's much more where the urethra is as opposed to more posterior. Right. So, uh, so how, so how do you translate that cue for women or what, what do you find, you know, do you find just say, Hey, imagine you have a penis and you're shortening it or do you, is there some other way that you translate that for women? Um, great question. So again, I usually have an audience of one, um, when I'm in the therapeutic setting. So right. I will kind of feel out if I feel like pretend you have a penis won't go over very well. I will not go that route. Um, right. but, <laughs> but I actually, even, um, Sometimes uh, we'll talk about like picking up a, a ruby with the vagina. 
So imagine like there's a little ruby on the chair and you want to pick it up. Um, I don't often use the like try to stop the flow of urine because one, if they were super good at that, they probably wouldn't be, you know, if that was right. really that's, easy that's, for them. That's the problem in the first place. Right, exactly. It's like, if I could do that. So again, um, last year um, in this discussion with Paul, someone in the group suggested, how about imagine sucking in? So instead of trying to close or squeeze, but imagine like, if you imagine shortening the penis, how about you imagine like almost like sucking in a straw? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that, that kind of worked. Um, so you're not so much thinking about stopping and clenching, but you're rather drawing in, which seems to to develop a little bit more of a of that desired contraction. Right. And um, so what are some of the, so this, you know, without, uh, again, I'm thinking in a group exercise setting, so it's kind of like not only pants on, but hands off as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the signs that people can know that they're doing it right? So you mentioned kind of a feeling of, lifting or um, drawing in um, and that might be around the anal sphincter but it's probably better if in a incontinence uh, context if it's more towards the front um, and so mm-hmm. maybe in sitting with in an anterior pelvic tilt with your bum kind of poking out mm-hmm. might be helpful there um, so yeah how what would you say to people like how do you how do they know they're doing it right and conversely what might be some of the things you don't want to feel or to see or do during a pelvic floor contraction? Um, If it's okay, I'm going to start with the things that I would observe or that they could catch themselves doing, which would indicate perhaps not an accurate contraction. Okay. Um, And that would be like when they start to get using accessory muscles and some of the most common accessory muscles are glutes, um, hip adductors. So like their knees will come together um, and their abdominals and they'll hold their breath. So what I will tell people is if I am just looking at you, you're just sitting in front of me. If I see you do anything, you're probably doing it wrong. So if you do a pelvic floor contraction properly, I shouldn't know it. Yeah, I shouldn't know it. So like your breath shouldn't change. Your voice shouldn't change. I'm doing one right now. You should have no idea except that I told you. Um, Some people like they'll get taller or it'll look like they're actually doing like a crunch. Um, some people, and I should say they get taller because they're clenching their, their glutes together. But if sometimes people will find that if they just get taller, so like just lengthen their spine, it's easier. I'm okay if they just get taller, but if it looks like they just got punched in the stomach <laughs> or clenched their glutes or knees together, um, or they couldn't talk, we're not quite there yet. Right. Um, now, Again, sometimes, especially because it's an area that it's, it's hard to visualize. I know when I first started training, people were like, well, just get a mirror and then take a look. Well, the position you need to be in to look in a mirror for that particular bit of anatomy, you have to be in a kind of a funny position. Um, so what I prefer is to go more with tactile cues. So most people at some point in the day sit on the toilet. And what I'll have them do is to because it's easier to feel for no other reason is that if you imagine like you're wiping yourself with some tissue and you get to those anal sphincters while you're there, do a contraction. And if you're doing it correctly, the, like you almost like feel like the tissue get picked up a bit and you can actually feel that muscle do something. Mm-hmm. So if they can feel that muscle do something and then feel the muscle let go when they tell it to, 
then they can be fairly confident that they're on the right track. Okay, so there should be a definite um, sense from inside and also from outside um, of lifting and, and drawing up as opposed to a kind of a, what you said before, a, did you say bracing or what was the word you used mm-hmm. before? That, yeah. That's, that's incorrect? Yeah, yeah. So if they just kind of like tense up their abs a lot and kind of talk like this, like that's not, in fact, even as I did that, I felt my pelvic floor kind of go like, get like pushed down but people feel these contractions or they'll like kind of like, like kind of suck in and almost like try to create a vacuum (laughs) to get their pelvic floor to come up. And um, to be honest, that's not sustainable and that's not a contraction. So if we're looking at improved coordination and strength, you need to activate that muscle itself. Like you need, you need to work that muscle out. You can't, you can't get around it. Okay. So as a, as uh, you know, you know, in a, as a non pelvic floor, physio where we're sort of hands off and pants on um there's not really any way that we can objectively tell if if someone's doing it properly or not but we can check in with them and say okay what do you feel when you do that and if they tell us things like lifting drawing up you know these kinds of things and that suggests that they're kind of doing it right and conversely if we see them bracing tucking their tailbone, squeezing their bum, holding their breath, that suggests they haven't quite got it yet. Correct. Um, however, if they're kind of struggling and we can't really see any anything obvious that they're doing wrong, but they kind of just can't, they're not sure if they're doing it right, they can't quite feel it where they're meant to feel it, um, really the, the, the next port of call is pelvic health physio, right? I completely think so, yeah. Because even if it's just one visit to just confirm or to get a couple of tips. I don't think that physio always needs to be, I mean, here in the States, a lot of people expect expect it to be twice a week for eight weeks, regardless of what they're coming in for. Um, But honestly, just that one visit to confirm, yep, you got it, nope, here are some tips. And then, you know, they can send them on their way. Um, I think that 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 knowledge that you are doing it right is pretty priceless. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is in the urine in the context of urinary incontinence and, and particularly after pregnancy, but I guess it's, you know, after reading your book, it seems it's like it's going to be mm-hmm. applicable to a large, you know, cross section of people. Um, you know, should should people who don't have urinary incontinence just be exercising the pelvic floors, or is this something you'd only do sort of during and after pregnancy or for urinary incontinence? Uh, that's there are lots of people who will answer that differently than me. I would say personally, what I, what I think is that um, exercise is good and our pelvic floor muscles are used throughout the day, but it is true that if you want to strengthen a muscle, you need to exercise that muscle. So if you're feeling like you'd like your pelvic floor to be stronger, then the answer is yes, you should definitely do some pelvic floor exercises on some sort of regular basis. And, and why, what would be, you know, aside from urinary incontinence, um, what might be a conceivable reason why someone would need a stronger pelvic floor, in particular pelvic floor? Uh, better orgasms. <laughs> also better That's, pelvic floor support for those internal organs. So as those um, ligaments. You had, you had me at better orgasms. Right. How's that for motivation? (laughs) Also orgasms. Um, Yeah. So, so the pelvic floor does function in, in sexual function. 
um, in both males and females. In males, it actually leads to, it, it does, it is involved in um, maintenance of erections. Orgasms are, in both males and females, are basically like generally perceived as pleasurable, but like that contraction and relaxation of a pelvic floor. So if you have a muscle that's in better shape, it seems reasonable that the that that contraction relaxation would be more noticeable, more enduring, more mm. better. Um, and I'm also, you know, there's, it's kind of something that I keep observing here in the States at least is in physiotherapy school, you learn how to assess every single muscle in the body, but not the pelvic floor <laughs> with the exception of the pelvic floor. And I think that if you want a piece to work right, you have to know that it's there and you have to know how it works. So I think that this regularly will help you learn, learn how to use it. Like, so can I squeeze it and let it go? Um, because a lot of people, if you don't think about it, and I see this a lot with my, the gentleman I see before their prostatectomies up to that date, like even on the date that they see me prior to surgery, they're continent, sexual function is fine. Ball function is fine. And it's about to change and their pelvic floor, at least our theories are the pelvic floor needs to step up to the plate and do a little bit more because there's a change in that lower urinary tract. Um, but they've never thought about it before. Like it's always just done its thing. So I think that if you can have that connection and know how to use it, how to turn it on and turn it off, you're going to be ahead of the game whenever you do ha- end up in a situation where you might develop incontinence. Right. And, um, you know, as you said, if you're exercising, if you're walking, if you're squatting, if you're doing push-ups, your pelvic floor is also contributing to those movements. So you are strengthening your pelvic floor by doing general exercise as well. But there, are, you've outlined some fairly con- compelling reasons to do particular pelvic floor exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, back to incontinence, um, what kind of like what kind of success rate or results could, you know, should we expect? So if somebody's doing their pelvic floor exercises for urinary, for urge incontinence or stress incontinence, you know, what kind, what's the prognosis? Um, it's, it's honestly pretty good. So with urge incontinence, sometimes you'll have to add in some behavioral modifications. Um, like how often are you going to the bathroom? A lot of people will start going to the bathroom very, very frequently, just in case. And then the bladder, that smooth muscle can kind of get trained. Right. You're like, oh, why, why would I wait? She'll go whenever I tell her. Um, so, or, you know, some people will find like bladder irritants, you know, so if you have two beers, everything seems to go downhill. Um, or if, you know, golly, when I have coffee, it gets worse. But if I have, um, I don't know, tea, it doesn't seem so bad. So sometimes there's bladder irritant issues that should be addressed in, especially in urge, urgency or frequency issues. Um, but with mixed incontinence, where there is at least a little bit of a component of stress incontinence, it is, it is very successful and you should honestly see a change. So I had a really lovely talk with one of my patients this morning where, um, you know, so you should see something changing in the right direction, period. You should not feel like you're getting worse. But if you've been working on your pelvic floor exercises for three, four, five weeks with no change, I would say, okay, there's either 
a problem with the dose, meaning you need to be working a little bit harder or a little more often or a little bit longer, or you're not doing it right. So if you have someone in your class and, and kind of doing general generalities and they're like, I've been working on it and it's no change, I'd send them to someone to have that pelvic mm -hmm. floor checked. Okay. And the last thing I want to touch on there is what you just alluded to in terms of dose of exercise. And so what do you recommend in terms of how many, you know, how, how long should you hold a contraction for? How many repetitions should you do? How often should you do that? And also um, just a little question on, so, you know, when we're manipulating the dose of exercise, we can manipulate the, um, the number of reps and how long we, we work out for. We can also manipulate the load. So what's, what's your kind of take on adding load to pelvic floor contractions? So I know there are various contraptions that you can buy that basically vaginal weights that you lift up to get more load through the muscles. Um, so, okay. So great questions. Um, we'll start with the load. I think we don't have a super good answer in the literature for that. Um, I think some people will have made memes on social media about like the best exercises, the one people will do. And in my close to 15 years of doing pelvic health, I've had three people, I think go, I want the vaginal weights. They got the vaginal weights and not one of those three people use them more than two or three times. Right. Um, it's, it's kind of a commitment. And to be perfectly frank, it's just as easy to use them incorrectly as, as correctly. Because <laughs> um, I, I say it, but only half jokingly, is that if you stick anything in there far enough, um, it's going to stay. And it has nothing to do with that, right. that weight. Right. Plus the pelvic floor. Well, there's really no muscle where you would just try to hold something for a really, really long period of time without moving, right? You're going to contract and relax mm -hmm. like you would for push-ups or bicep curls or squats. Um, you'd want to be moving it through that, um, through that range. So, so I don't usually prescribe or recommend vaginal weights. Um, what I do instead is I try to see if people can recruit the muscle more. And so what I mean by that is, so some people, you know, when they do a pelvic floor exercise, they just squeeze it and they let it go and they squeeze it and they let it go. So I like to do the, like kind of an elevator where you kind of start out with like squeeze, like half, squeeze half as strong as you can. Now squeeze 75%. Now squeeze hundred percent. Now do you got anything else? Mm -hmm. And then kind of lower it back down kind of one floor at a time. Hmm. That's interesting. Cause when you, um, said to me before, can you contract your pelvic floor? I did, but you didn't say how much. And then just as you were saying that to it hundred percent, I was like, Oh, actually I was, when you said squeeze your pelvic floor before I was only doing like 30%. Right. Um, and you know, really to, you know, if we think about it, like even like in like a CrossFit, you know, if we think about muscles and CrossFit, right. Like you keep trying to do that. You, you're looking for that one rep max or that, that fatigue. Right. Um, and Thankfully, there's a couple mechanisms built into the pelvic floor that will keep it from being completely fatigued. Thank God, because bad things I feel like would happen if, if yeah. we completely fatigue that. Um, but having, you know, like just so you can, again, it's a little bit more of a, a proprioceptive exercise, but also, oh yeah, like wait, wait, that's 100%. Can I do more? Ooh, there's 100%. And then lowering it back down so that when you're doing the squeeze, you're not just kind of lackadaisically doing it, you're like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing, I'm doing this as much as I can. And then I'm going to lower it back down. Yeah. 
And um, so, so what would you do in terms of sets and reps and how many days per week? So it totally depends on the person. I honestly will ask them, what would you be willing to do? Um, like for instance, I have a patient right now where I think I have her doing, um, we started out at five reps three times a day. And today I asked her if she could do one more rep at each, at each set. And she's like, oh, this is taking forever. <laughs> and I'm right. like, okay, just try for me <laughs> or keep doing what you're doing. But also she's not pleased with the outcome. So like, it's like, well, we have to change something. We need more of something, but I need you to help me figure out what that more, what more would be feasible. Right. Um, so but, it's somewhere, somewhere at the intersection of, of motivation, convenience and results. Exactly. And so you can go like basic, like strength and conditioning, like protocols, like doing like three to four sets of like eight to 10 reps or 10 to 12 reps. Um, but again, I have found that figuring in what the person will do is really key. <laughs> Otherwise they don't do any of it. Yeah. Um, there are some pelvic floor trainers out there because there's you, might, you alluded to it, that there's tons of things you can put in your vagina that are supposed to make them better. Um, but my personal favorite is actually, and I get no money for this, is the LV, which actually there's an app on your phone to take you through a series of different types of contractions. So like longer holds, shorter holds, um, kind of, uh, you know, more endurance exercise versus more coordination exercise. And I think that some people do very well when they're walked through it, just like they get a personal trainer, right? Like I know what to do to exercise, but if I have a workout buddy, right. I work harder and I yep. do more. Yep. So, and we'll link if I'll, I'll get, I'll get the, the details of that app and link to it in the, in the show notes. Um, so essentially like, you know, strength and conditioning principles in, apply, which basically says the more you do, the stronger you get, but it only works if you do it. So find find something that is going to be doable and and do that. Yeah. And if I could add one more thing, another key thing people do forget with um, pelvic floor exercises is sometimes they forget to relax. Um, you know, if you're working out your biceps in front of a mirror, if you never straightened your arm, like you'd notice. Um, with the pelvic floor, it can be a little trickier. So I really encourage people to pay attention to like, if you feel that like that gathering and that lifting and that contraction, when you stop contracting, you should feel that let go and you should kind of feel like it, it goes back to where it started. Right. Actually, uh, that sort of puts me in mind of a question I really do want to ask, even though we've kind of gone a bit over time, <laughs> for which I'm sorry. But um, so you've convinced me of, of the benefit of doing pelvic floor exercises for, you know, essentially for almost everybody, but particularly for people with urinary incontinence or various other kind of pelvic health issues. Um, should pelvic floor, you know, outside of the realms of maybe pelvic organ prolapse or urinary incontinence, you know, just for the general population, should pelvic floor contraction be something we cue as, you know, preparation for exercise, kind of like we used to cue transversus abdominis back in the early 2000s? You know, you couldn't, couldn't move. move <laughs> <that now>. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so should, is, should we think of pelvic floor as, as something we need to cue specifically as part of exercise for a general population or should it just kind of do its thing automatically? It should kind of do its thing, in my opinion. Um, there, 
I, I think what I have found more helpful, at least clinically, is making sure that people are breathing um, and not holding their breath. So a shout out to Julie Weeb, who um, where is where I got the, the phrase like blow before you go. So if we think about, because if you, if you squeeze your pelvic floor, and you don't have to do this now, but if you like squeeze your pelvic floor and try to stand up um, or do something, and then you just instead like inhale start to exhale as you do that movement, it's much easier and much more fluid for most people. Mm-hmm. I always in class have one person that goes, nope, I like squeezing hard <laughs> and on purpose. I'm like, okay. Um, so there isn't one final answer. But um, when we inhale, our diaphragm descends and it kind of like mobilizes everything like in a kind of a downward direction. Mm-hmm. And as I exhale, it's subtle, but everything kind of recoils, including the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. So yeah. instead of contracting on purpose, we because that's not how it works usually, right? Like you don't have to think about it usually. Right. We'd much rather you do your set of pelvic floor exercises to build up the strength and whatever else you need to do in there. But then we want to integrate it back into normal movement and function. And I would say that doesn't include a pre-contraction, does not include a pre-contraction. Right. So normal movement and function kind of almost by definition is, is largely automatic. Yes. Beautifully said. That's awesome, Sarah. This has been very enlightening. I've learned a few things, even after reading your book, I learned, learned a few things (laughs) in our conversation today. Um, And I'm going to be practicing my kegels. (laughs) Um, thank you very much. I, I'm really grateful for this conversation. And there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff I actually wanted to ask you, which I'd left out because we already went over time. So thank you for um, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Well, really, thank you for having me. I obviously love talking about this stuff. <laughs> it shows. <laughs> Thanks very much. See you, Sarah. Absolutely. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. 
Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.